0: you got your kids ready and got yourself ready and know you chose which roads to turn down today but I have this crazy belief that I, I think the reason you're here is because is God wanted you here today and that, that God's gonna do something. So um, pray with me. Jesus, uh, I pray that uh, I am a conduit through which you work today. No, uh, that is a, High honor I ask for, Lord, but I pray that you speak uh, through me. I pray that our our eyes are open, our ears are ready to hear, uh, and most importantly, that our hearts uh, receive what you want to do today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you, worship team. All right. So we are continuing our series called The Code today, where we're looking at... Uh, values that kind of help shape our church and, and hopefully uh, shape the culture and the feel of, of what God is doing here. So uh, we're closing it out today, although I've already decided I'm going to add a bonus uh, next week, partially because I wanted to, partially because it's this weird week between this series and then Christmas. And it's like, what do you do with that? I promise it's not like a throwaway. I'm really excited about what we're gonna talk about next week. But it's like the appendix too. It's the append. You never read the appendix, but you're gonna next week because it's really good. You should be here. I'm excited about it. So we're closing out today. All right. One of the things uh, I deal with as a pastor uh, on a semi-regular basis, which I dealt with it less, uh, is I... Um, I guess I don't deal with the thing. I, I get to be there after the fact when people make decisions uh, that destroy their life. I, I, get to, I, get to, I, I get the privilege of being the one uh, that people call when they do those kind of things, right? When they make a decision relationally that destroys their marriage. Uh, when they make a decision financially that destroys their standard of living when they make a decision professionally that destroys their career when they make a decision spiritually that train wrecks their faith I'm usually the one that I get to be there for that uh, pr- again the privilege of being there for that and uh, those kind of things when that happens man it always feel, to me it always feels like a like a nuclear blast going off uh usually uh I can almost feel the heat from the decision. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not physical, but you just kind of feel it. And then everything in the person's life has turned to ash. And then anybody close after the fact gets like radiation poisoning from being around it. It's that kind of a decision uh, that they've made. Usually selfish, usually a string of selfish decisions. And it's not pretty. Um, so if I may just advise you, don't make a decision to destroy your life. It's, it's not fun. However, however, Um, many of us in this room, most of us in this room will not do that. You're not going to destroy your life. Odds are. uh, You probably have another danger uh, that's bigger than destroying your life. Most likely for you. Most likely. The most dangerous, the most devastating thing that could happen to you is not destroying your life. It's wasting it. It's wasting it. By far, you are, you're more likely to waste your life than destroy your life. By far, you are more likely to live a mediocre, monotonous, mind-numbing, meaningless life than you are to destroy it. Statistically speaking, you are far more likely to, to waste your life than to destroy it. So it's not going to be an explosion. It's going to be a slow decay it's not blowing up, it's, it's rusting out. So while I hate being close to those explosions when they go off, I also really hate standing around watching the paint peel off of a less than life. I hate that. So I know this is like a deep question to start with. I usually start with a joke um, or I try to at least get you laughing, although y'all in second service are a lot harder to get laughing than first service. I usually start with that, but um, you... Uh, you get to ride the emotional waves of whatever I was doing on Thursday, which evidently I was feeling very pensive and reflective because I'm gonna start with a question. Um, are you wasting your life? Are you wasting your life? I know that's coming in hot. Probably should have at least tried to make you laugh at first, although since you guys are difficult, I just, whatever, this is what you get. See, you don't laugh at my jokes, you get deep stuff right off the bat. We jump into the deep end. There you go. So you better start laughing you're gonna get punched in the face every week so that question am i wasting my life i want that i don't want you to like dwell on that but i do want it like playing in the background today as we look at this story so i'm gonna look at a story It's about two of Jesus' disciples. Now you probably know he had 12, 12 guys who followed him around were a big part of his life and ministry. Uh, Of those 12, there were three that were kind of like dubbed his inner circle. I don't know if they had official title, but three who were closer to him, even than the 12. And it was uh, Peter, James, and John. They were kind of the inner circle. The story today is about two of them. It's about James and John who were brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee. They also had a nickname. Uh, They were called the sons of Thunder, which is really cool. Uh, Jesus gave them this nickname when uh, this town disrespected Jesus and they asked Jesus, hey, can we call fire down from heaven on them? <laughs> which is just amazing, isn't that awesome? Like, I know that's probably not what you're supposed to ask. Jesus did say no, by the way. Um, but then he dubbed, he gave them this nickname, the sons of thunder, which is awesome. Cause I just love that Jesus used sarcasm as like a teaching tool. Like they never lived that down, but it was like one of those reminders for them. Like, oh yeah, we're not supposed to do that. Um, so that's, uh, it's these two that the story is about today. And I really like them, even though I think a little bit of what happens in the story is kind of boneheaded. Uh, I really like these two. So it's in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Here's what, uh, says, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. So to picture the scene, you have Jesus, you have uh, James and John, and then you have their mom comes with them and she leads the way and she comes up and she kneels before Jesus and says she has a request, which is uh, kind of painting this picture of almost like a royal throne room, right? Like she's going to come in and kneel before the king and ask a request of him, which is by the way, the right way to approach Jesus. So she's doing this in a very respectful, very like deferential way to Jesus uh, and she wants to ask a question. So verse 21, she replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Whew, okay. Okay. So she just asked, in case you don't know, she just asked for about the biggest thing that you can ask for. And just give you a little bit of context. At that time, uh, during Jesus' ministry, his followers didn't really understand that he was coming to build a spiritual kingdom. They still thought it was gonna be an earthly kingdom. Like they thought that Jesus was on his way to taking Rome out and like sitting on a literal physical throne in Jerusalem. He, they thought he was going to like rule like physically from a throne. So what she's asking for it's for them to literally sit next to him on his right and on his left. She's like, hey, I got two sons. You got two arms. Let's do this, right? So she asked for both those seats. That is about the biggest thing you can ask for, right? Now, oh, also to give you a little bit more of a full picture. Um, we know, as you'll see as the story kind of rounds out and you kind of infer from some of the other gospels that James and John put her up to this okay? This is not some helicopter mom coming and like, hey, like talking to the football coach, like, hey, my sons are really good, you should play them. That's not what this is. Um, you know, quarterback and running back, obviously, that's what they should play. No, she, um, she was asked to do this by them. They, they kind of put her up to this. So, I guess I just want to ask, like, if it's, now that you know all that, like, how do you feel about this? Like, this situation, that, that these two... Um, had their mommy <laughs> come ask Jesus a question. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I'm, I kind of feel like this is slimy and cowardly, right? If, I mean, you got mom, you got mom to come ask a question, guys. Like, I don't know. Like, can't you order your own pizza at this point in your life? Like, you really have to ask mom to go do this thing. And considering what they're asking her to ask on their behalf, kind of a big deal, right? I mean, maybe if you're going to ask something that big, you should be able to do it yourself. It just seems like if mom's going to ask the big questions, maybe mom should be sitting in Jesus' right hand, not you. I don't know. I just don't. My knee-jerk reaction to this story is I don't like it. And then if you look at what they ask for, man, I mean, essentially, what they're asking for here is Greatness. Right? They're asking for greatness. They're ask, they want to be great. They want to be top of the top. I mean, they didn't ask for the throne, but they asked for the two seats right next to the throne. They want significance. They want excellence. They want greatness. That's what they ask for. So I have a question. Is that wrong? Is that wrong? The way the story is written, you almost want to say, yeah, that's wrong. They, sh- they shouldn't have done that. It seems slimy. It seems wrong. It seems selfish. It just feels wrong, right? And by the way, as you continue, we'll, we'll look at this here in a minute, the disciples, the other 10, they thought it was wrong. Uh, the Bible actually says that they were indignant, which if you look the word up in the, in the Greek, it's got like a little bit of surprise, a little bit of grief and, and big mad. They were, they were big mad. They did not like that this question got asked, especially since mom asked it for them. They didn't like this. But, like, how do you think Jesus is going to respond? You kind of get the impression. I mean, again, if, I'm, if I didn't know better, I've read this story a couple times in my life, but if I didn't know better, I would think Jesus would say, hey, mama, move out of the way. I got to deal with your boys here for a minute and just go be like, guys, come on. Like, this is pathetic. You shouldn't have done this. Like, you think that Jesus is going to come down on them for this. But I want to show you, well... Before we, we're going to look at everything, he says, but I just want to drop down to one line. I want to start here and then we'll work, we'll work back up. Um, but I want to plant a flag in the ground here. This is one of, the, one of the main thrust of his response is in Matthew 20, 26. Here's what he says. Whoever wants to become great among you must stop. Not what you would expect. You would expect Jesus to say, you shouldn't want to be great what are you doing? Why are you asking the, And you're your mom? Like, guys, come on, don't send mom to do your do work. You shouldn't be doing this. You expect that. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus says, if you want to be great, let me show you how. Let me show you how. So he's going to teach them here in this little micro story, how to pursue greatness. And the, the word Jesus used here is really interesting. So he says, Who, whoever wants to become great. And it's this Greek word, megas. Megas. I've talked about this word before. I don't know if you totally have all my sermons memorized, but I've talked about this word before. It's really cool. Um, it, it has uh, many uses in the Bible. If you look this word up in the Greek, you'll see lists of verses where this, this word is used. Um, and what I want you to see about it, though, is. Um, it's this word for big or large, grand, powerful, excellent. That's what this word means. But it's, it's a neutral word. It's neutral. It's not given like a moral good or a moral bad. It's neutral. So let me just give you a couple of examples. One place this word is used is it's used to describe a storm. A magos storm, remember when the disciples were around and a storm came up and Jesus was sleeping because he's not worried about that kind of stuff and and they wake him up and and he tells the storm to shut up. Well, the word used to describe the storm was a megas storm, a big, powerful, nasty, megas storm. It's also used in the New Testament to describe King David, who, if you know, the New Testament has nothing but shining things to say about King David, so it talks about him as if he is a powerful, excellent, good, megas king. It's used to describe... The stone that was rolled in front of Jesus' tomb—a big, massive, hard to move, megas stone. It's also used to describe the joy the disciples felt when they saw the stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty. Big, massive, overwhelming megas joy. So it's neutral. Is what I'm trying to get you to see: is this word is not good or bad? It just is, um, and that's the way Jesus uses it here that greatness is not necessarily good and not necessarily bad, it just is. Two things will dictate the quality of greatness, what you pursue in your life and how you pursue it, what you pursue and how you pursue it. So my first point I I wanted to make was that it's not wrong to pursue greatness. Some of you, I think some Christians have this this like philosophical principled problem with pursuing greatness. Like if you say, hey, I wanna be great, Christian's going to tell you, don't do that. That's not the right thing. But I want you to see here that that's not what Jesus did. Somebody asked for greatness and he said, let me show you how. Matter of fact, I would even take it a step further and say it's wrong not to pursue greatness, but we'll get there in a minute. I think one of the best ways, or I guess worst ways, to waste your life is to convince yourself that it's wrong to pursue greatness. Um, Now, I had it right here in my sermon. I wrote this whole section arguing theologically that it's that it's good to pursue greatness. I wrote this whole thing out. It was like it was like this long, and it was good, better than you'll ever know because I deleted it. Uh, You trust me, though, right? You can imagine how good it was. It was sad. I shed a single tear deleting it. Um, But here's why I deleted it. I think about you a lot. I know that's weird, not you specific, but you, you know what I mean. On Thursdays when I'm writing my sermons, I got this, this Bible text that I want to be able to communicate, but I think about you a lot. Like, what's it going to mean to you? And, and I got all caught up in arguing with this person who like has this principled stance against pursuing greatness. And I was totally going to beat you. I was going to knock you out with, with these really good points. And then I, I thought, you're not... You're not really fighting anybody though. Like, essentially, you don't really care about that. Um, That's like not the problem, not the main thing that will prevent you from pursuing greatness in your life, not now. I think, at least most recently, the main thing holding you back from pursuing greatness is, well, the past two years, (laughs) right? Uh, these past two years, 2020 and 2021, have been like the hardest years ever. And I think most people—maybe this isn't you—but most people went into like a survivor mode these past couple years. You kind of flipped from from whatever you were doing in 2019. You switched into "I just got to make it. I just got to make it." So you went into survival mode. And here's what happens when you switch into survivor mode: you're not pursuing greatness anymore. That's not a thing you're after. You're just trying to keep your nose above the waterline. You're not pursuing greatness anymore. So I was reflecting on that and deleting pieces of my sermon and I kind of felt God nudge me. And I don't know who I'm speaking to specifically, but just two words. It's time. It's time. Get up. Uh, Don't let a couple of hard years steal your potential in your life. Don't let uh, the difficulties of these past two years keep you from pursuing the destiny that God has for you. It's time. I, mean, if I could, if I could extend like a spiritual arm, I'd say, come on now, get up. It's time to get up. Don't sit anymore. Don't stay where you are anymore. You need to get up and pursue your potential. You need to. And I beg you, don't sit there anymore. If these past two years put you on the ground, you know what? Uh, get up, shake Satan's hand and say, nice one, man. You got me in the jaw, still hurts a little bit. My, my head still ringing a little bit, but I'm not staying down anymore. I got to get up and I got to pursue my potential. God has done something. God has planted something inside of me and I can't, I can't sit on the ground anymore. Potential. That's the gap between who you are and, and who God created you to be, right? What, what, God, uh, what you're doing right now and what God wants you to do with your life, that's what your potential is. That's it. And don't, don't let these past two years keep you from, from moving towards that, keep you from closing the gap. Because by the way, I think the definition of a wasted life is one where this gap never closes, where who you are and who God created you to be, where you keep distance between that and this never shrinks, or who, what you're doing and what God created you to do, or you never close that gap. That is the definition of a wasted life. Man, I really don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. Don't let a wasted year turn into a wasted life. It's time. Get up. So, I wanna look at Jesus' full answer to this question. So back in our story, here we have uh, the mother of James and John kneeling before Jesus asking this question. James and John uh, slimily standing in the background, waiting with bated breath to hear how Jesus is going to respond. Uh, I wanna give you the full response here, uh, starting in verse 22. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Uh, so, so first Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asks them a question. He says, you guys have no idea what you're asking. Let me ask you one. Can you drink the bitter cup that I'm about to drink? And then they answer and they say yes. <laughs> so in case you don't know. Jesus is pursuing greatness in his life. Jesus is going to do the greatest thing that was ever done. He is pursuing the highest form of greatness and his path to get there is going to be hard. It's going to be suffering involved. So he's like, you guys wanna follow me? That's awesome. Well, you know, It's gonna be hard to do that. Can you drink the same cup I'm gonna drink? And they say, yes. <laughs> By the way, I... <laughs> careful answering questions you don't understand. Carefully answering questions you understand. Look, look what Jesus says next in verse 23. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink the bitter cup. You will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or who will sit on my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. So they say yes to the question Jesus asked and Jesus says, okay. That's scary, right? That he he will respect your answer to a question that you didn't even understand. Just really, for real, be careful answering questions that you don't understand. Because he says, fine, you'll drink it. But then he says, by the way, those two seats that you're asking for, not mine to give away. That's God the Father, not me. So he's going to decide that. So you're going to pay the price, might not even get the payoff. That's what he just told them. Uh, now, here's what happens next, verse 24. Uh, so that's a little micro interaction. Then the other 10 disciples heard what James and John had asked. By the way, James and John had asked. Um, they were indignant, big Matt, uh, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over people and the officials flaunt their authority uh, over those under them. So uh, he's going to use this as a teaching moment. Mom left, they're all together. They're, they're all salty at these two for asking that question. And uh, Jesus is gonna use it as a teaching moment. So he says, hey guys, come here. Um, Think about all the leaders in the world and how they lead. Think about the way they do it and the demeanor in which they lead and the kind of greatness that the leaders of this world have. He's like, think about that for a minute, okay? So he wants them to have that in their mind. And then he says this in verse 26, but among you, it will be different. Whatever the picture you had in your mind, not gonna be you. Whoever wants to be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. In case you're newer to the Bible and stuff, Jesus, when he says son of man, he's talking about himself. So he's saying, even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus just kind of lays it out here. This is what it's like. This is what it looks like to pursue greatness. Um, so, I want to give you some principles uh, that I gleaned from this this interaction, and then how Jesus responds um, about how to pursue greatness. I want to talk about how to pursue greatness, and then what, which is definitely out of order, but I'm gonna do it anyways. How and then what? Um, but before I do that. Uh, I do this thing sometimes, especially with a sermon like this. It gets me really—I get really reflective and weird. Um, ask my wife. I just—it stuff like this kind of messes me up when I think about these kind of things. One of the things I do uh, is I—I <laughs> I walk through cemeteries. So if you this is your first time hearing that, you're like, "That's weird." It is. I'm aware. Um, so this morning, uh, I, I walk around town a lot. That was the other—I I walk and pray a lot, and uh, I. Done it for years now. One of the things I used to do is circle this building. Where does that is? Now I'm preaching inside of, it, which is kind of cool. Separate story. But um, I was walking around town today, and I was down over that way. I don't know what the name of the road is. And I had uh, this kind of decision when I got to the road: I could either turn back and kind of go back into town, or I could turn this way. And to give you some context, it was like I don't remember what time. It was dark still. Uh, so I looked that way, um, and it was dark. And that's where the, the cemetery is. Woodlawn is over there. And I, like, I'm 6'2", 250 pounds, I'm not, like, afraid of anything, because um, I'm big, and I'm, I always joke with my kids, I'm the scariest thing around, you know, not to be scared of anything but me, that's parenting technique. Um, so I'm not, like, afraid, but it's just, like, weird, you know, it's, like, darkness, the cemetery, and there was definitely a black cat walking by, and I'm not even kidding, there was. Um, it was just weird, it was just weird. So everything was pointing towards not, but I'm like, you know what, I gotta walk, and... Um, Whenever I pray on Sunday mornings, I'm always kind of praying about what I'm going to preach about, and like, I don't want to just like say stuff to you. For me, it's big for me to like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I have to own it first. I have to like absorb it inside of me. So I want the feel of this thing I want to communicate to you, not just the words. I can memorize words; that's easy. I want to, I want to be able to communicate the, uh, the, the soul of it, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm walking around the cemetery, and that's the exact place that I need to be if I'm going to be asking the question in the first two minutes of my sermon. Are you wasting your life? Because for me, when I ask that question, it's one thing to do it in here, it's another thing to be walking through a cemetery asking that question. Because man, that like, it like puts everything in a different perspective. Uh, So I'm walking through and like I have this, I don't know, angstiness when I do that. Um... (laughs) I won't share all of my prayers. I'm pretty jacked up. I don't know if you guys know that. (laughs) Uh, Because when you ask the question, am I wasting my life? My goodness. It's not an easy yes or no, right? It's not an easy yes or no. I know that because it wasn't easy for me. I have some pieces of my life where I'm like, nailing it. This is it, man. I'm doing something eternal. And then other areas of my life where I'm like, man, I am like using a lot of time doing that. And it's totally useless. Like, why am I doing like this with my life. It's a lot of my life and I started to wonder about these people who are, who are, you know, represented by these tombstones, what they would think about the hours that I spend using them on stuff that doesn't matter and um, they messed me up because like those stones, man, it's a pretty crazy cemetery if you've never walked through. Very, very historical, very old ones. Some of them you can't even read but um, you got these two dates on all of them, right? A date born, date, died, and then that stupid little, this little dash in between that represents their entire life. And then all that's left is a stone. And like the, the, over, the biggest impression I can get from walking through a cemetery is I just, I don't want the only impact I leave behind to be a rock with my name on it. It's one of, the, there's this, part, I don't, if you know this guy, I'm sorry. It's biggest, one of the biggest tombstones in the place. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's like this wide, taller than me. And it says King Loomis on it. I don't know who he was. Dude had money or whoever his family was had money because his tombstone is massive. And I always chuckle a little bit, which I know is mean because he's dead and he can't defend himself. But I think how sad is it that if it's, if that's all that he left behind is a really big rock. Like he wins the tombstone competition in Woodlawn. is just impressive. But like, I don't want to win that. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't care about the, the rock. I care about like, what, what am I leaving? What kind of legacy am, am I actually leaving? I always want to have that contrast between the two. So um, I guess what I wanted to say Before I jump into, I want to talk about how to pursue greatness and then what. um, I think some of you, maybe you are living like below the potential God has placed in you. You're living below it. Um, And maybe you just decided that this is as good as it's going to be for you and that this is as high of an achievement as you're ever going to get to, and you just kind of placed an artificial ceiling on your life, and you decided that you were going to be okay with it. And maybe you had a bunch of different reasons for that too. Maybe some of it was protecting yourself because it hurt too much to know that that gap is really wide, and you didn't want to admit that you hadn't made any progress, so you just said, you know what, it's not here anymore, it's down here. And you've decided, I've reached it. You moved the goalpost because it hurt too much to admit or maybe you've had some things happen as you've maybe made some progress and you got knocked back down so it just hurts so much that you just decided I'm not going to keep going anymore. I don't know. But I think, I guess what I want to do is I want to challenge you to pursue greatness both in how you do what you do and, and then what you do. And I want to acknowledge that maybe you've decided that's not something you're after anymore. I just want to encourage you not to do that. Not to do that. I think the, the easiest way to waste your life is to just decide you're not gonna pursue greatness anymore. So I wanna, con- <laughs> I'm trying to convince you of that. Don't be like King Loomis. You don't want a stone to be the only thing you leave behind. Um, let's pursue a, a higher and a deeper form of greatness. So here, let's talk about how. Hopefully I've convinced you to listen. I wanna convince you to listen. Listen, this is important, how to pursue greatness. First lesson I pull from this little interaction, um, it's better to ask for responsibility than it is to ask for a position, right? So, so James and John ask for a position. They want, they want this, this, these seats next to Jesus. They want this title. Um, I think that's the mistake a lot of people make. By the way, when you're pursuing purpose, a lot of people think you need a position to pursue purpose. That, that's, I think that's just a built-in assumption with some people, well, I want to pursue this purpose. like I have to have this position in order to do that. But Jesus said, no, 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 you don't need a position. Your purpose is not about a position. It, it, what did Jesus? Jesus kind of pointed towards, uh, he said, it's not about a position, it's a disposition. It's more about what's going on in here than it is some title that you have, right? Um, so, so I think the big lesson here is don't, don't ask for a position, don't ask for status, don't ask for rank or a title. No, ask for responsibility. Ask for a project. Ask to get your hands dirty doing something. Especially, by the way, if you're asking God. Don't ask God for a, for a title. Ask God for, for, for a project. Ask God for something you can do. Greatness. Greatness asks for responsibility. Amateurs ask for a position. Amateurs think they need the position in order to do the thing. But the reason greatness asks for responsibility is because they know... Someone who's pursuing greatness knows that position follows responsibility. And if you think about it in the reverse, if you wait to take responsibility until you have the position, you'll never get the position, right? You kind of have to treat her as good as you would treat a wife before she'll say yes to being your wife, right? You can be like, I will be nice to you when you say yes. Like, you can't do that. She's never going to say yes, right? Like, you're going to need to take the responsibility first and then you get the position. It, it follows that. So if you want to be great, ask for responsibility. Don't ask for position. That's the first thing I see in this story. The second thing, this one's really important. I'm going to dive all the way down into this one. When it comes to greatness, don't confuse the concept with the commitment the concept with the commitment. James and John are enamored with the concept of greatness, with the idea of greatness, but they do not understand the commitment yet. Jesus very clearly says, you do not know what you are asking for right here. So they, they had in their minds this picture, of Jesus sitting on this throne. Uh, just in my daily Bible reading the other day, I was reading about Solomon's throne, it had all these lions up to this, this, uh, this beautiful throne with steps and everything. I just imagined the disciples were, were imagining something like that. And then a seat over here and a seat over here where they get to sit with this air of the authority. They were enamored with this idea. But Jesus is like, do you know how much those seats cost? Do you know how much it takes to get there? And they wanted to say yes, but she's like, you have no idea. The cost is more than you realize. Have you ever went to buy something that was more than what you realized when you got like, to the actual point of paying for it? Has that ever happened to you where you thought it was going to be one price or was another? My wife and I made the, this mistake on the worst possible thing you could make it on. When we, when we bought our first house, we didn't know anything. And uh, we got online and they had those mortgage calculators. <laughs> have you ever used one of those? <laughs> Let me caution you. They're wrong. (laughs) They're total We didn't realize, oh, there's this thing called insurance and property taxes and all this other stuff. So when we get our first bill, we're like, what the heck? This is not what a mortgage calculator, it was a lie. Uh, It costs more than we thought, by God's grace. We figured life out. Um, And the second time we bought a house, we did not do that. Um, But greatness costs more than you realize And when you get enamored with the concept, but you don't understand the commitment, it can really mess you up. I think people like the concept of a great marriage, but they don't understand the commitment, right? They don't understand the self-sacrifice, the forgiveness, the the investment that a great marriage takes. They look at somebody from a distance go, ooh, I want that, but they don't understand the, the commitment it took to get there. People like the concept of a great career, but they don't understand the commitment. Yeah, you look at that person who's achieved that or has that or whatever, and you, you, you love that and you, you want that, but you don't understand the cost it took, the commitment it took to get there. People like the, the concept of being a great artist or a great athlete or a great musician, but they don't understand the commitment. They don't, they don't understand the hours and hours of blood, sweat, and tears that went into the craft. There's a commitment that will probably be more than you thought when you decide you want to pursue greatness in your life, it's going to cost more. Whatever you think it is, it's going to be more than that. Now, the Bible uses a different word than commitment, usually. Um, usually, the Bible will use the word faithful. When you read faithful, it carries the idea of being committed. Um, so I wanted to dig into this even more. So I don't want to just say, hey, don't be enamored with the concept. You've got to understand the commitment. I want to dig down and, and even... Uh, Dig deeper into this. So I started a list. Now I'm starting a list off of a list. You understand what's happening. This is a great sermon. Okay, here we go. Um, one, the kind of commitment, the kind of faithfulness you will need will be long term. If you want to pursue greatness, if you don't, you're good. Short term's fine, but if you want to pursue greatness, it's it's all about the marathon, not the sprint. Jesus is not impressed with your forty time. He wants to know what you can do the marathon in. The answer for me is never. I can never do that. But. <laughs> When it comes to pursuing greatness in your life, it's going to take the slow and steady over the flash and the pan. Eugene Peterson called it a long obedience in the same direction. Little bursts of passion are not going to cut it. Intensity works in the short run. Consistency is what will win in the long run. James and John make this decision. They think following Jesus for a couple of months, a couple of years, ooh, I got greatness. They didn't realize that it actually is going to take a lifetime of following Jesus to achieve what they wanted to achieve. I've told you before, I'm telling you now, and I will remind you in the future, that in high school I hit a three-pointer over LeBron James, and I will never not, I will never not tell you that. Um, so if this is your first time here, welcome. I expect you to clap every time I say it. That's another thing that you need to know. I hit a three-pointer over LeBron James in high school. Thank you. Uh, it wasn't even a game, it wasn't even a scrimmage, like a drill that we got matched up for. I know I shouldn't tell this, I always do, like I, I always overexplain it, like I, I, I wanna be cocky about it, but then be like, but it wasn't that cool, but it really was. But here's the deal. I can say something that I'm guessing most of you can't. In my head-to-head matchups with LeBron James, I have outscored him in my career, three to two, okay? So you should be kind of impressed with that. And by the way, if he ever offers to play me again, I'm gonna say no, because I'm good. This is the way I want this to stay. Okay, three to two, I win. Um, but here's the thing: <laughs> we, even as I'm trying to be self-deprecating, I'm still overinflating what it was. Uh, I love that, and the fact that I keep bringing it up, you'll just never gonna hear the end of it. Um, but in that moment, I outscored him, so I achieved this this spike of some kind of something in the basketball world. Um, this moment where I did something good, but this dude. LeBron lives up here when it comes to basketball, right? Like he, and he lives there. And here I am going, hey, I hit a three. <laughs> he wasn't even paying attention, but I hit it on him. Like he was totally the one guarding me. Um, but how silly of me to think that that flash in the pan was greatness compared to the consistency he's shown in his career. So listen to these two quotes. Craig uh, Groeschel Pastor says this, great people do consistently what average people do occasionally. Great people do consistently what average people do occasionally. That hurts my feelings. Second one, Jim Collins is a, a business guru. He says this, the true measure of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. The true measure of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. So he's not saying it's, it's not about the spikes of greatness that you can achieve. No, no, no. That's not greatness. It's, it's consistency. If you're inconsistent, that's more of a measure of your mediocrity than anything else. Again, that also hurts my feelings. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you want to pursue greatness, what I'm trying to get you to see is there's a long-term consistency that is necessary. If you want a great marriage, you can't occasionally be self-sacrificing you have to consistently be self-sacrificing. If you want the word great to describe your marriage, you gotta be consistent, right? If you want a great career, you can't occasionally bring your A game on Monday morning. No, you gotta consistently bring your A game on Monday morning. If you want to be a great parent, you gotta consistently discipline your kids, not occasionally, right? This principle applies everywhere in your life. If you want greatness, you're gonna have to be consistent and not just consistent for a while, consistent in the long term long obedience in the same direction. I saw a tweet the other day where the guy said, what looks like success is often just patience. What looks like success is often just patience. And so I thought, man, that sounds like something Jesus would actually say. Like you think it's this thing, but man, the, well, you don't see, the behind the scenes of someone who's done something great is this long-term patience and being consistent in their life. And then it finally came that they, they were able to reap the fruit of the, of the labor that they had done their entire life. Greatness is a long-term, consistent, faithful pursuit. Second thing, second thing, is that it's a, it's a commitment, is a faithfulness in the small things, in the small things. Jesus very specifically says that being faithful in the small things is the key to being given greater things. Faithful in the small things and you will be given greater things. Jesus says that flat out. How you treat something small in your life will dictate whether or not you get something bigger in your life, right? Or to say it differently, what's next is connected to what's now. What's next is connected to what's now. How you are handling your current situation will dictate what your next situation looks like. How you end one season is going to dictate how you start the next one. This is huge. This is huge. Because if you're like me, I do this thing, and there's a good part of it or a bad part of it, but if I'm ever doing something uh, that doesn't... I'll have this thought. That This, this thought is like... That, that this thing that I'm doing is... <laughs> is beneath me. You ever have that? You don't want to say it out loud. My wife would smack me if I said that sometimes. Like, this is beneath me. Oh, really? Do the dishes. Shut up. Um, I'm really good at the dishes. That's the side subject. Um, it's beneath me. It feels like it's literally... Now, listen, the reason that's, a, that's not all bad is because what that statement means is you believe that there's something bigger for you. You believe, if, especially if you're a Christian, you believe that God has something bigger for you, that God has something out there that's, that's bigger. So believing that this thing is too small inherently means that you believe there is something that is the right size for you, but, but the attitude cannot affect this small thing that you've been asked to do because what Jesus said is, let's see how you do with this one. Let's check your attitude here. Let's see if you'll do this and then that'll dictate whether you experience that. So it, I don't know what area of your life you might be feeling like this thing is too small for me, but man, if it's too small for you, then you should be freaking awesome at it, by the way. Go and do it. Knock it out of the park with this thing that is too small for you and watch God work because he promises if you're faithful with the little things, he'll give you greater things, right? So let's apply this. You want a bigger bank account? Fine. How are you, how are you handling the size of the bank account that you have right now? Huh? With, the, with the, you call small? That's Fine. Are you handling the small amount of money the way God says to? And then, (laughs) well, or are you telling yourself the lie that if you had more, you totally would? Because that's not true. Faithful to small things, he'll put you in charge of many things. If you're single and you want to be married, how are you handling your singleness? Are you bitter, angry, and whiny that God hasn't given you that person? Somebody's scoffing over here, they're married. By the way, the Bible upholds singleness. I don't know if you know that. The Bible holds signals really, really high. Paul talked nothing but good about singleness as an as opportunity to serve God with the amount of time and energy and resource that you have as a single person. It's supposed to be a great thing. All the single people said, you should have said it louder. This is also supposed to help you if you don't want to be single. All the single people said, okay, you guys suck, whatever. Have fun looking on the internet for somebody. (laughs) It's not written down. (laughs) I'd like to formally apologize to all the single people. We're just going to practice (laughs) that. It's derailed, we're going to have to leave this point. I have more, but we're just going to go. Um, So Everything I've talked about up to this point is how to pursue greatness. How? And I think what's brilliant about Jesus is when he teaches stuff like this, when he even, he's not even like sitting down saying, here's how you do it. Like he's just, just his interaction shows you this. Um, the principles are so powerful and so, so solid that like you can use it anywhere. You can use these principles no matter what you're trying to pursue. If you use these principles, it will be a great way to pursue them. Um, you could even pursue a, a crappy thing in this way and it would, it would get you somewhere. Um, but what I want to talk about now, though, is, is the what. I think the worst thing you could do <laughs> is be really great at the how and aim it at a crappy what. Um, so, how to pursue greatness now, what to pursue. Uh, I want to jump back uh, to those verses that Jesus ended with Uh, Starting in verse 26, Jesus said, um, his big, big, hey, gather round disciples, I wanna tell you this, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servants, your servants. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that was Jesus' big lesson. They all leaned in, Ten of the disciples were frustrated. The other, James and John, were kind of confused. Um, They didn't really know what was going on. Jesus said, listen, you want to be great? That's awesome, you two. Let's rest you. Listen, Here's, here's what you do. Here's the thing that is great. And then he says something that kind of doesn't make sense on the surface, right? Jesus always did this. He spoke in paradoxes, kind of like Yoda, right? Give and you will receive. If you want to save your life, lose it. If you want to be great become a slave Like those things don't make sense really on the surface But you have to understand that what Jesus is doing is he's explaining to his disciples that what happens in the physical has a different outcome in the spiritual than we would realize sometimes so when he speaks in things that seem like they're straight up contradictions what he's saying is when you do this in the physical this is what happens in the spiritual so yeah when you give in the physical you receive in the spiritual When you uh, lose your life in the physical, you gain it in the spiritual. And when you uh, want to pursue greatness (laughs) in the physical, what you need to do in the spiritual is is become a slave. The way this looks, greatness in the spiritual, actually (laughs) is very different than what the culture would teach you greatness is in the physical. Basically, the way up over here is down over here. You want to go up in the spiritual, go down in the physical. Basically, how Jesus defined greatness is anything that ripples into eternity that you do in your life. Anything that ripples into eternity. Something that will last forever. Something that matters not 10 years from now, not 50 years from now, but a thousand years from now. That's great. That's the what that you should be pursuing in your life. At the end of your life, when you stand before God, he is not going to ask you how many times you are promoted at work. He's not. He's not going to ask you about your 401k, your investments, or how much Bitcoin you have. He's not going to ask you that. He's not going to ask you how big your house was. He's not going to ask you what neighborhood it was in. He's not going to ask you what kind of car you drove. He's not going to ask you what kind of purse you carried. He's not going to ask you what your bench press was. He's not going to ask you where you went on those really cool vacations. He's not going to ask you any of that. Nothing wrong with those things, by the way. I'm down for all that. Don't care about the purse, but all the other stuff I'm very interested in. Those are good things. I just listed good things. Good They're not great. They're not great. There's this principle that we need to see in our lives. See, it's not not the bad that's the enemy of the great. It's not you destroying your life that's going to prevent you from greatness. By and large, I believe that, that you're not going to destroy it. It's the good that's the enemy of the great. It's, It's when you decide to settle You've reached a place in your life where, you know what, things are good. I have this, I have this, I have this, I have this. I'm good. And you stop right there and you allow good to prevent you from ever pursuing great. It's the good things that get in the way of the God things in your life, not the bad things. Come on now. Man, I, I get so messed up by, by preachers and churches that focused on all the bad things. okay. But your problem is you pursue good things, not great things. It's not bad things. The biggest competition for your heart is not bad. It's good. And you've settled. But God has so much more for you. He wants so much more for you. So today we're talking about our last value here. Um, And the way we word it is we, we chase excellence. That's, that's the, the last about it. that's what we call, we chase excellence. And um, we use the term excellence instead of greatness, um, use the terms interchangeably today. Uh, the reason I do that, uh, hesitate a little bit. If we said we chase greatness, I just feel like it might come off as a little cocky to some people, like, oh, you guys are pursuing greatness, okay. Um, so we call it excellence and maybe we'll shift that here in the future since I'm going to get more bold with that. But we believe here at Mosaic that we serve a great God and we want to do great things in great ways to honor his great name. We believe that. That's, that's what we want here. And I want a church full of people who, who pursue a great what with their life and they pursue it in great hows. And, and I believe that that would be incredibly magnetic to the world around to see a bunch of people who said, you know what? I'm not living my life for good. I'm living my life for great. And I just think people would be drawn to that. So I started thinking like if there was somebody sitting here listening to me and I said offhand, almost like just zoomed right by it that Jesus defined great as things that will ripple into eternity. And uh, you might be sitting there going, okay, <laughs> well, what does that mean, right? Um, I think a lot of people get sentimental with stuff like that. Uh, but I would say overall, if you really wanna know the answer to that, read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Make that your thing, start now. You can wait till January, but you should start now. I know you're gonna start a Bible plan in January 1. I know it's awesome, it's gonna be great. You'll wait till February when you stop. But just start now, go get further then. Um, Read them. The reason I want you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is because that's the descriptor which follows Jesus' life and ministry. You wanna know what's great? Look at the best example ever. He was the greatest man who ever lived, he pursued greatness, read that. But if you wanna list, Let me attempt to give you a list, a a list of great what that's found in there. When you get to the end of your life, and you're standing before God, he will ask. He won't ask all that other stuff that I just listed. He won't ask about the good. He's going to ask about the great. He will ask, did you love him with all your heart, mind, and soul? He'll ask that. That's great. A person who loves God with all their heart, mind, and soul, a person who puts God on the throne of their life, that is a person who lived a great life. He'll ask, did you love others as you loved yourself? He'll ask you that. Christian, he's gonna even ask more than that. He's gonna ask you, did you love others like he loved you? That, that's a great life. He'll ask you, did you forgive others? He's gonna ask that. Yeah, even that person. Yeah, even that. He's gonna ask it. Because a person who forgives, man, that's a great thing. He's going to ask if you ask for forgiveness too, both of him and of the people in your life. That's a great thing. Someone who, who's really good at asking for forgiveness, that's a great what in your life. He's going to ask you if you were a giver or if you kept everything that he gave you. He's going to ask that. A giving, to be a giving person is a great what to pursue. He's going to ask you if you took risks for his glory, if you always played it safe in your life, he's gonna ask that because that's a great thing to take risks for the glory of God. He's gonna ask you if you uh, like him, if you seek and save the lost in your life, he's gonna ask that. He's gonna ask if you did that like he showed you to. He's gonna ask you if you have love. He's gonna ask you if you had joy, joy. Did you know that that's a thing that he wants you to be joyful? Not, not joyful because of this, but joyful from in here, that that's great. A joy-filled life is a great pursuit He's going to ask you if you had peace, peace, not peaceful out here, but peace coming from in here. He's going to ask you if you had patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are great. That's true, true greatness. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up here now and end with the same question I started with. Are you wasting your life? Are you living below what God wants for you? Oh. There's that gap, that gap between who God created you to be and who you are right now, that gap between what God wants you to do and what you're doing right now. That gap, what's it look like? And maybe today's the day you decide, and you know what? God created me, Jesus died for me. There's way too much life left. There's way too much potential left. I can't waste it. I wanna do something. Maybe today's the day to make that decision. Pray with me. Jesus, I pray for the person right now who's sitting here, who's feeling that tug from you, that they're living less than, they've settled that you, you want more for them, you want more from them, you want to do more through them. I pray for them right now, Lord, you would light a fire, that it wouldn't be some depressing thing, but it would be an inspiring thing that you would wake them up. They would realize that, that if, if they're not dead, you're not done, that you have purpose left in their life, Lord, and they would get up and pursue it. I pray for the person who these past few years has knocked the wind out of them, Lord. I pray that you would renew that, breathe new life into them. I pray for the person who hasn't even accepted you as their savior, Lord, that they would lay down their life for you today, Lord, that they would pray that very simple prayer, Jesus, I give you my life, and that that would be the first step towards greatness. They would surrender it all to you. Lord, and I pray for this church, that we would not be a good church, (laughs) that we would be great, not the selfish, slimy kind of great, but the kind of great that you define. And that we would build your kingdom here on this earth and push back darkness right where you planted us. I pray that the person sitting here listening to this prayer would want to be a part of that. Find their purpose in a greater one. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.